Chats, the show where I, Josh Pinkford, founder of Bear Metrics, hop on a call with other founders and get the stories of how they started and grew their businesses. This week, I talk with Zach Smith, founder of Packet. In this episode, we talk about being a kid entrepreneur, dropping out of high school to play music, going to Juilliard, uh, stumbling upon cloud hosting, starting an infrastructure business, and a whole lot more. All right, Zach, thanks for hopping on the call. How's it going? Uh, it's good. A little chilly here in New York City today, but, um, you know, that's from a California boy. Right, right. Well, I'm, I'm in Alabama, and it's like it's in the 20s today, so it's Ooh. it's chilly here as well. We had a little snow this morning, which is atypical. A dusting? Yes. Yes, very very light. I don't know. You know, it didn't really stick to anything, so it's, yeah. But the kids see a, a flake of snow, and it's, you know, amazing. It's Christmas all over. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, well, cool. So, so to, to kick things off here, so you, you have a music degree from Juilliard. It's true. Uh, and where you played the double bass, is that correct? That's right. The stand up. Right. Yeah. So, so like that was like 20 years ago, almost. Do you still play? I, I do not. And I have a very specific reason why. Well, because of course I sold my super cool double bass, which was in English, Boozy and Hawks, five string, um, 1911 made for the British army double bass. Right. <laughs> um, it was super great. And I did it to like start my first business. And, um, I, I vowed myself that I, I get, get back into it. My wife runs a music school. Um, so we have lots of that in our lives, but I have young children and, um, putting, you know, one to 200 year old pieces of wood in the corner in a small <laughs> New York city apartment is a recipe for being very sad. So right. I said, as soon as my youngest son, who's now seven, he's good he's getting there he but he hasn't yet learned not to kick the soccer ball inside and uh so i i told myself as soon as he was good with that i'm i'm going to david gage's base shop in tribeca and get myself a hundred year old piece of wood there you go (laughs) it's it's amazing how um i have three kids and like their ability to thoroughly destroy anything and everything is it's it's a it's a real skill I got a talent for that. And my younger one just, he loves to kick the soccer ball, especially we've had, you know, we got a lot of winter going on around here and he can't go outside very much and play soccer. And so he's decided that he's going to do practice inside in the living room. So we, I think I've replaced, you know, five or six light fixtures this season. um, (laughs) And I'm just not willing to do it with a, uh, you know, 200 year old Italian double bass. Right. Right. He he could not, the kids cannot currently appreciate, uh, you know, how no. nice having something like that would be exactly so soon <laughs> but not not yet so. right 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 so okay so so speaking of kids here what I, i'd love to hear about you as a kid like where did you grow up yeah well i grew up in southern california in a little mm-hmm. town called yorba linda which is in orange county um it's a little bit south of los angeles but you know kind of snuck in between los angeles and san diego and um, grew up pretty much in, in that town since I was five. I lived in, I uh, was born in, in Chino, California, which is nothing really remarkable. It has a maximum security prison and a lot of cow pastures. Um, I think now they're all turned into track housing, probably, knowing right, right. Southern California. Um, yeah. But we moved to, to Yorba Linda uh, in, uh, I guess that was probably, what, ni- 1984 or something. I was born in, in the late 70s. And, um, yeah, grew up there, kind of pretty normal childhood, tinkering around, doing stuff. Uh, I, I was always an entrepreneur, so I'm happy to tell you some of the things that I did to make a hustle. But um, that's, that mainly was with my identical twin brother, Jacob. Um, who I'm lucky enough to work with today. And I have an older sister, Courtney, who um, still lives in Los Angeles, uh, 18 months older than me. So we're kind of like a, a ragtag, you know, group of, of three kids all around the same age. Yeah, yeah. Were you um, were you into technology at all as a kid? I mean, I, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was you know, early days with a lot of technology stuff, but I was in a Nintendo. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, I knew that you had to blow on it really hard to get the game to work again. Cause duck hunt would occasionally not work. Um, right, right. I was, I was a tinker, you know, um, not really a, a sophisticated one. I had my role to play in like probably like a lot of kids. I got into to tech via video games. Right. right. Um, and so one of my good friends, a guy named Tim Ford, who's one of the lead designers on Overwatch, um, he was the video game player and I was like his assistant. So, you know, when you had the, the computer and it had like the DX or the DX2, the original 386 things, it had the turbo button, but the yeah. clock speed wasn't always right. So right. I was his guy. I'd be like, I'd be fixing the computer or like if he needed me to hit the turbo button, you know, that that would be my job. And he right. would actually play the games. 
Um, so I was kind of the assistant to the guy who knew since he was a kid, he wanted to be a video game designer. Um, yeah. and then, then I was playing with PCs because my aunt, she worked for IBM and mm. she got us like an IBM PC junior for Christmas one year. And we were using it to, you know, do like Mavis beacon teaches typing and like Oregon trail on the floppy disks and, yep. uh, word perfect with those little cutouts used to put on the keyboard, right. you know, with all yep. the function keys and whatever. Yep. And I remember because I would always like, we had a computer friend who knew about computers and he would come over and help, you know, with the computer. And um, one day after he left, I, I decided I wanted to open it up. So I opened it up and my sister had this big book report that she had done and it was saved on one of those five and a quarter floppy drives, you know, word perfect. And, and um, she hadn't printed it, um, you know, out yet. And I broke the computer and I couldn't get it back together. And so she was so pissed. <laughs> so I stayed up and, and I fixed the computer, not probably just by luck, you know, putting it back together until it made the right noises. And so that kind of got me on the tinkering thing. And then I wasn't afraid. I saved up money. Um, my first job when I was um, about eight or nine, my brother and I started a lawn mowing business. Mm -hmm. um, and we were, you know, there's lots of lawns to cut in California. So we had tried car washing and we had tried cleaning pools, but we weren't successful. And, but we got good at lawn mowing. And so we made some money. And the first thing I bought was, you know, a computer. And so my brother and I invested a couple thousand dollars because that's what they cost then. Um, and went to the PC shop and, you know, picked out all the parts and went for the high end tray loading CD ROM. That was a big thing. I think we we're yeah. the only people in our school who had a, a CD ROM. Um, and yeah, it was kind of my, my love affair with computers. I always liked to tinker. What, so, you know, you mentioned that you were kind of typical kid entrepreneur. I mean, were oh. your parents entrepreneur at all? Uh, no, not at all. Um, in fact, my dad is probably one of the least, you know, or most risk averse people I know. Um, he grew up, uh, you know, in, in Orange County and then, um, worked as a cement truck driver and then at a ready mix concrete business. So he's always in construction. So he was a builder, always building stuff. Mm -hmm. Every single weekend, we were fixing something on the house, going over to work on my grandma's, you know, replace some plumbing. So from him, I always learned how not to be afraid about, you know, figuring out something, just tinker yeah. around, you know, go to the Home Depot if we need to do. The only thing he wouldn't do is, is uh, you know, high-powered electricity. And I was like, okay, got that one. Right. But if yeah. it was plumbing or concrete or carpentry work, you know, we worked on it. And my mom, um, she worked for the school district helping um, new bilingual students get integrated into, um, into their lives uh, in, in Orange County. Um, and she ended up doing the English as a second language program. She was always really into that. And now she runs a STEM program for, mm -hmm. um, for women uh, and young girls uh, at a community college. So she was always like out there helping people. Um, and I, I love that about her. My dad was just, a, um, you know, in the construction business, solving people's problems. I think that's where I got my pension for ops because I love, yeah. I love to fix things that nothing yeah. makes me happier than when I, a problems like uh, something's broken and we make it work again. I think mm -hmm. I got that from my dad. I, I, an interesting thing that I, you know, even uh, I, I find a lot of entrepreneurs, their parents are also entrepreneurs, but even, mm. but the ones whose parents aren't, there's still this, you know, like teachers are a super common thing. Mm. And, uh, and then like you mentioned your dad, how, you know, it just like he would be willing to sort of fix or build or create anything. Right. Like, which oh, yeah. is to me is like a, a very common sort of entrepreneurial trait. We had a big with, workshop. Right? We had a big yeah. workshop and, um, I think my, one of my dad's favorite set of possessions was all his, his dad was an electrician, actually. Maybe that's where he was, got scared of electricity. Um, <laughs> his dad was an electrician and had this amazing collection of tools. You know, it's mm -hmm. the kind of thing, I, I live in New York City, so I don't really have a strong tool collection, but, right. you know, it takes a long time to get the right tools for the job. Sure. Right? And yep. we had a really cool, you know, tool collection growing up and just like a great workshop full of everything. And I just always remember like, you know, and we'd be like, oh, the sprinklers are broken or, oh, we need to like fix the, uh, you know, the sidewalk or, oh, the roof shingles came off. And then we'd go out and then go out in the shed and see what we had. Then we probably have to make a little run for some parts and then we'd fix it. And then we'd be like, okay, we fixed it. And that yeah. was a thing. Or like, oh, we wanted to like, we built a room addition onto the house and we did it ourselves. 
And it was right. not like we had to hire somebody to go do all of that while we watched and drank coffee. A, we didn't have the money. And B, it was like, well, we should be able to do that. Let's go figure it out. And so that yeah. kind of approach of, yeah, let's like, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? We'll have to figure sure. it out. Um, was a really cool, or we might have to ask the guy at Home Depot again and go back to right. the hardware store and ask him one more time about how it's supposed to go together. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you enjoy, um, cause I find myself like, I, you know, I can fix stuff around the house and all, but like, I don't enjoy fixing broken things. Like I would rather create something new. Mm. Like, do you, do, which side of that coin do you find yourself on? Like, Oh man, fixing things or creating. I'm, I'm such an ops person by heart. I mean, like I've got this weird, like, you know, two-sided thing to me, which is on one side, you know, and I ended up going to school. And as we mentioned earlier, I was a musician. Um, that's like totally artistic. Right. But I actually right. approached it in a pretty methodical way. And when I, um, you know, I, I spent some time, I went to school here in New York um, at Juilliard. And what I noticed is that the people who were the best musicians were actually, um, how do I put it? Highly disciplined. Um, mm -hmm. They worked really hard and practiced really methodically and fixed the broken things about themselves um, to yep. get their um, technique or, you know, um, their habits or whatnot. Um, so for me, I'm like by nature, a, uh, an ops person and I work at creativity. Um, it's not my forte, but I kind of similar to like an analogy of a writer who has to like write every day so that they can put something good. I kind of work on being thinking outside the box. That's something I work on. Um, and I kind of lay time out in my day and I've got this kind of rule about how I do it, but basically I try and get you know, about 10% of my day to be totally crazy thinking because otherwise I probably wouldn't do it. I'd just try and fix problems all day long. Gotcha. So it's like the, the problem solving sort of op stuff is like the thing that gets you excited, but you like sort of force the other side of it because you need the, the combination of them. Yeah. And that's the only way that you really can be like, I mean, for me, I'm a, I'm a very excitable, enthusiastic, optimistic person. And, uh, you know, uh, it's the way I can, um, force myself to think bigger all the time. And yeah. then, then I, then it's like, oh man, now how would I make that happen? That's where I really get into is like, for example, what we're doing here at Packet or whatnot is a really, really big problem set that I thought outside the box. And then we've been on a mission for the past five years to try and make it work. So it's, you know, we continue, I continually like to do that as part of my process. Got it. Yeah. So um, going back to, let's say like um, high school, were you, were you a good student? Did you enjoy school? I dropped out. Does that, does that's, that count? <laughs> yeah, that's acceptable. <laughs> but it's a good story. Um, and, yeah. and my parents weren't angry with me. And that's probably the better part, the better lesson. Uh, so let's see. I was, um, you know, a good student. Uh, no problem with that. Um, I did occasionally, if anybody's listening, don't tell. Um, I did occasionally cheat off my twin brother because um, <laughs> he's way smarter than me. But um, I, you know, whatever. I was a good student. I did my thing and I was kind of, you know, pretty buttoned up as a kid. Uh, and then in high school, I was really into music. Um, I was touring all over the place. I had, I had um, been lucky enough to like do a couple of TV shows with the Disney Channel around uh, classical music. So I was like, I thought this world was so cool, right? And it, I had grown up in this sleepy little town in Yerba Linda where people really didn't leave. And suddenly I was all over the place and I was getting to see this whole new, exciting um, kind of side of things. So I got really into music um, in high school. And um, I guess it was my junior year. Um, I wasn't into sports. I wasn't you know, into all that kind of stuff. So I didn't care about like the football games or anything. And I was yep. busy. I was, I had a bunch of students. I was teaching double bass to about 15 other young, young kids. So I had kind of, that was my evolved lawn mowing business went into music. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of paying my own way, saving for college. And um, frankly, I just felt that high school was kind of a waste of time for me. And sure. I was, for some reason at the time, maybe a lot of people are like this. I was, I was really in a hurry. To, to grow up. <laughs> and yeah. I just thought like, you know what I need to be doing and I need to be doing all this other stuff. Meanwhile, I should have probably been enjoying high school more. Um, and so I got frustrated and I went to my counselor, my guidance counselor at the beginning of my junior year. And I said, I want to graduate early. And she said, well, you know, you, um, you need to take a single, uh, I'd been doing extra credit and zero period and all that stuff to get all my credits done. 
And um, she said, well, you know, you, you need to take a senior English class and you're not a senior. And I was like, well, so can you get me into the senior English right class? Now. <laughs> right? Like, um, so I can be done. And she's like, no, you need to wait until you're a senior and then you can take the senior English class. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense. I was super frustrated. So yeah. I went home and I read about it. I think I was at the library or whatnot. And um, I, I went back like a couple days later and I took my GED and I dropped out. Right. And then yeah. I basically came back the next week and um, said, I'm a dropout and I would like to take the adult education class for senior English, which is the only thing I'm missing. <laughs> she was pissed. <laughs> 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 and uh, so I eventually graduated high school um, with the help of my brother, who um, he, he also kind of went out early and was was in college. And so um, I finished up my junior year. I got into uh, I got into Juilliard and I left when I was 17. I moved to New York. What? what it, like, OK, so you said that your parents like weren't really mad about it. Like, what what did, what was that conversation with them even like? Um, I mean, my parents were super supportive, um, always. And first off, they knew I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't like dropping out to like, right. you know, like hang out at the mall or something. Right. I was like sure. crazy and ambitious and trying to do other things. And I think that, um, you know, they were just like, well, you know, this is act like, this is a big decision for you and you need to make the one that you want to make because it's your life. Right. And they were super, super chill about it. And it, I don't think they took it lightly. They just said, okay, well, like if, so they made me um, apply to, I had this school in mind. I wanted to go to this school called Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, where they only take, I think it's 120 kids at one time, uh, people, students, sorry. Um, and enough to fill an orchestra plus some piano players or whatnot. And I was just dead set on going to Philadelphia for, for Curtis. And I said, I'm going to get into Curtis and that's the only one I'm going to apply to. And that's what I want to do. And I'm yeah. going to say, they don't care if you've graduated high school or not and you know, whatever. And my mom said, you know, no, you know, you need to like create better options for yourself. So she made me apply to a few others that had early, ad early admittance programs. So she said, why don't you go research other schools that, you know, can take you early. So I applied to USC, which had an early admissions program that you could go your, you could finish your senior year and your freshman year in college at the same time. And Boston University had something similar. Um, and I applied to those. And then she said, oh, you should also do, you know, Juilliard while you're at it because they, they also have an early entrance program. Um, and uh, it turned out that I got into USC but didn't want to go there because my sister was going there. I got into Boston and really liked it. I didn't get into Curtis where I thought I wanted to go for sure. And then um, on a fluke, Juilliard accepted me. And so I was kind of hooked because I came to audition. And when you go to a music school, you have to audition. So you show up and like, that's how they judge you. And then some teacher picks you or not. And it's very com like a competitive, like, you know, kind of bake off of some sort. Right. Sure. And I just love New York. I just love the energy. I love like how I was on the subway and there was like rich bankers and homeless people all together. You know, it was like yeah. the whole cross section of society had to like rub shoulders. And I was so not used to that in Orange County where I grew up like in suburbia where, yep. you know, we didn't see any of that either side of it. We were like, you know, you didn't rub shoulders with anybody you didn't know pretty much. Right. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this is cool. And I just got hooked on New York and, and that was my choice of my parents. I think my mom was really sad <laughs> because she I mean, was that's yeah. as far away as you could it's, it's pretty, still be in the States. <laughs> I pretty much picked as far away as you could go. And then that was not right. completely uh, on accident. I really was yeah. looking to spread my wings a little bit. I think that sure. she struggled with that and, you know, uh, but in the end we've, uh, we've stayed really close. So I'm, yeah, I think it worked out. So, okay. So you get accepted in Juilliard. This is at that, at this point, are you still junior year? Uh, no, it was after or... my junior year. So I, I oh, okay. yeah, it was all done. I was 17 and I moved to New York. Um, I guess that was 1997. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I came to New York and I, uh, you have to live at the dorms when you're at Juilliard yeah. your first year and the dorms are in Lincoln center. And I was on the 27th floor of some high rise and that's where the dorm was right. <laughs> so it was so and i and my roommate i showed up and here's this guy and his name's alexi Podkoritov, and he was from siberia novosibirsk and he didn't speak a lick of english and i didn't speak a lick of russian <laughs> sure. and it was literally like hello orientation goodbye and he was this pianist amazing pianist from from russia been going to conservatory since he was like five years old and here's me this california boy who had been like 
uh, I went to public school and I decided to drop out and come over here. And right. um, <laughs> we, we formed a great partnership, the two of us. And that's actually one of the people I learned from the most because that guy just worked harder. Man, he worked hard, right? Like I'd get up at yeah. eight o'clock and he'd been practicing for two hours in the, yeah. in the practice room down the hall. I'm like, holy mackerel, this guy works harder. No wonder he's so darn good. <laughs> it's not because he was born a genius, right? He just right. works his butt worked off. Hard. Yeah. So yeah. I moved to Juilliard and I had to get a job because, you know, really my, my parents had three of us in college and they're like, yeah, you want to go to Juilliard to have fun. I got a scholarship, but you know, you got to live. Um, sure. and so uh, that's, that's where the computers got back. I was working at the mm. bookstore, wait, the, 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 box office. I was giving out free tickets to the concerts and I was getting paid $5 and 75 cents an hour. That's the student job. Right. And yep. it's really hard to live on $5 and 75 cents an hour when you're, you know, working two hours a day or whatever. And, yep. um, I was like, what's going on? So these old ladies kept coming up. And they were, they would just sit there and chat and whatever, right. And get the, get the tickets. And I was a young kid. So I started chatting with them. And then one of them's like, do you know anything about email? I was like, yeah. She's like, you know, AOL, I'm trying to send email to my, to my grandkids. And I don't know how, could you, could you come and help me out? I was like, sure. And she's like, I'll pay you. And I was like, okay. And she's okay. like, how much? And she said, I'll pay you $30. And, um, I said, okay. And I went there and she fed me lunch and paid me $30 to help her send email. I was like, hmm, huh. this is good. <laughs> yeah. And then she says, do you have any extra time? Because then you could come and help me send emails every week. I was like, absolutely. And then um, she says, well, I have some other friends who also are having trouble sending email. <laughs> and so <laughs> I ended up um, not working at the box office anymore and helping um, this wonderful group of, um, you know, old ladies uh, send email to their grandkids and learn how to use the Internet uh, yeah. in 1997 and 98. And, man, I went to these cool places like Fifth Avenue penthouses and like, yeah. you know, top of Trump Towers, you know, because people had to send email. So right. it's all good. So that's how I got that's more right. into computers and it turned out it paid better than, than the uh, box office. It's so funny. Like the, the way that, I mean, I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs like, you know, figure out different ways to make money, but I mean, helping old ladies send email, I think that's the first of, Hey man. And you got a, and you got a sandwich. I mean, like, and for <laughs> starving, starving college student, anything with food attached to it is like bonus. Right. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay. So, so how do you're, you're at Juilliard. You're you're helping old ladies send email. Yep. Like it's going good. Did you finish? <laughs> did you finish? Did you finish at Juilliard? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I was you know performing all over the world. I mean, it was pretty intense doing music festivals in Germany and like I had a I had a job in an orchestra in Hoboken and you know doing this stuff. And then I realized my junior year, I said, you know what? Most people who I know who had graduated from Juilliard still don't have jobs. And so I started to ask around and like, there's about 600 people at Juilliard at any given time, maybe 800, including the graduate students. And the vast majority, I, I did the numbers. Like if I want to get a job in an orchestra, like New York Philharmonic, I was talking to my teacher and he was this great gentleman, his name, David Walter. And he had been playing in the city. Like he had played in the NBC symphony for Tuscanini in the thirties. This guy's like in his eighties, right? He's still right. playing at the city ballet. I'm like, wait, there's eight double bass players in the city ballet and you've been there for like 60 years. So that means that there's about a new job every half century. Right. <laughs> so I was like, the numbers are not good, right? There's 30 yeah. bass players graduating from Juilliard over the next couple of years and there are no jobs. So I was like, I gotta, I gotta, I don't want to be a starving artist. Let me go figure out what else I can do. And so I kind of knew by my junior year that I didn't want to go into a career in music. And I, by that, I just couldn't control enough around it. I couldn't, tackle the problem. Like what was I was going to do? Show up for the one, you know, audition at the New York Philharmonic that would happen in the next five or 10 years and, and win right. it against a thousand other people. I couldn't, I couldn't live with those odds. Right. And I, well, I, I, just, I, mean, I how, just didn't know what to do. So go ahead. What was that feeling like? I mean, the, you've, you've just dedicated a obscene amount of time yes. to being a musician and yeah. now you've sort of come to the realization that I'm not going to do this. Like, yeah. what was that like? Uh, it was okay. Actually, I was totally fine with it. I think a lot of my Juilliard classmates were really struggling with it because this was not a, um, uh, how do I say, uh, I wasn't the only one to come to this realization, but there's oh. a lot of people like my roommate from no who's like, I've been doing this since I was five years old and I didn't even go right. to regular school. 
like I just went to music school. Um, my wife, who I was married to, she'd been conservatory in, in China since she was six, right? She's like, I didn't yeah. even do like algebra, right? So I mean, <laughs> it's not like you're stupid. You just didn't that, you didn't go through that, right? At least I had gone to public right. school, and I just felt, you know what? If I can figure out how to be at this place, Juilliard, with like some of the best people on the planet at what they do, um, I can figure out how to do other things. Yeah. Why not? I know what the trick is. I watched my roommate do it. It's like work hard, be self-critical, be open to like being the dumbest guy in the room all the time and trying to get a little bit better um, and having a little bravado of confidence. Like, why not? Why not me? And so yeah. I said, let me go. Um, I'm in New York. What could I do? And I ran into a flute player friend of mine and he he was always like buying lunch and dinner and stuff. And none of us had any money. So we were always like, you know, scrounging for meals or whatever. And I was like, what, how do you make, how do you make money, Bill? And, and it turns out he's like, oh, I, I have a job. And I was like, well, what's your job? He's like, um, I work at Goldman Sachs. I was like, what? You're a flute player. You work at Goldman Sachs. And he says, yeah, I got a temp job helping the bankers work on their PowerPoints. And they're paying me like $45 an hour. I was like, whoa. And he's like, yeah. And he's sending me home in a black car at night too. I was like, wow, tell me more. So I, I, I called him and, I, and he said, well, you go to this temp agency. I remember it clearly, Wall Street Access. He's like, go down to Wall Street Access. And it's a temp agency that places you at the banks. And just you know, ask him for one of the big banks and tell him you want to do PowerPoint work. I was like, all right. So I went down there. I was like pretty good with computers. So I went and um, had to do their like five hour training thing or something like that. And then they placed me at Credit Suisse. And so I started working um, my senior year um, 6 p.m. to 4 a.m. at Credit Ooh. Suisse uh, first Boston over on uh, uh, 23rd Street, and it was brutal. But it was it was I mean from the hours perspective, right? But I was sure. getting paid. Suddenly I'm making money. I've got like you know 40, 50 bucks an hour, and if I work overtime on the weekends, they're paying me like 60 bucks an hour. The problem was most of the time I wasn't doing anything. I was literally mm -hmm. sitting there waiting for a banker who had gone out drinking to come back and give me some edits for his pitch deck that he had to do because like X company is going to buy Y company and they needed to update the pricing or something like that. And usually they didn't come back. So they'd order you up and charge you to the client and then never come back. So I was sitting there with access to the internet, bored as heck. I'm, I'm like a worker bee, you know, I'm used to like doing something, right? And I couldn't yep. do anything. I couldn't leave because they might come back at any time. Um, but I had internet. So that's when I decided, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start my own business. Might as well. And yeah. um, I called the only person I knew who had been in their own business, a guy named John LaRue. He had started a company called PacWest Telecom. It was a competitive CLEC back in the 1990s. Um, and now he runs the world's largest phone museum, in case anybody's interested. It's really cool. It's in <laughs> Santa Cruz, California. It's awesome if you're a nerd and like wires and phones and dial tones. Yeah. Um, and I called him. And I said, hey, John, um, you're the only guy I know in business. Should I, you know, should I get in the phone business? He's like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he said, uh, you should get into business. Um, you know, if you choose to get in business, do something that's recurring revenue where you sell them once, don't mess up with your customer, treat them good, and they keep paying you every month. I was like, that's a really good idea. He says, and you know, you just have to worry about being a good, you know, being a good vendor, helping them out, doing the right thing. You don't have to worry about selling them every month. Like let's say you, you know, sell pizzas or something. You never know when you're gonna get the right. next call. Um, yeah. And so I said, okay, what could I do? And that's when I decided to be in the web hosting business because I had all these Juilliard friends who wanted to have websites. And I was like, you know what? I bet they all have to pay somebody to put the website online. And so I Googled around, ended up on webhostingtalk.com. And mm -hmm. if you go back, you can find some of my very embarrassing posts from 2001 where I'm asking what Linux, Linux servers are. I think that's what I, I spelled <laughs> it wrong. I was like, what, is the, what are these Linux servers about? <laughs> right, right. And I ended up meeting um, a guy named Raj Dutt um, who uh, was I posted at 2 a.m. asking about Linux servers, and he wrote me back like at 2.01 a.m. And um, I ended up renting some servers from him. And he had a company called Voxel, which was based in Troy, New York. 
And I thought, wow, this really cool company. And here's the CEO of the business who's writing me back at 2 a.m. This is awesome. I must have gotten super lucky. And so I bought a couple servers or rented them and started dipping them up. And within a couple months, I had sold hundreds of websites to my musician friends and related 20 bucks a month. So I quit the bank. I was like, screw this. And so um, I'm getting paid and I finally go up to meet. um, I took my, my girlfriend, my wife now, my girlfriend at the time. I said, let's go up to Troy, New York and see what this is all about. That's how I had sold the double base. By that time I had graduated by the nick of my you know, thumbnail. <laughs> Cause my, right, right, right. my music history teacher was like, I was falling asleep at his 9am class every morning and uh, he didn't want to, he didn't want to graduate me. He's like, I'm not going to graduate you because you don't care. I said, listen, Mr. Um, you don't want to see me back here next year. So let's just, right. let's just agree on a C. Okay. <laughs> like, let's just be done here. <laughs> There's no offense. I don't mean it. It's not personal. I'm just really tired because I just got off work. Uh, right. and, uh, I gave him the sob story. So anyways, I graduated, sold the double base. I bought a, bought like a, like this little, little car I was going to be able to use as part of my business and like, you know, sell people and go to the data center and stuff. And so I, I drive up to Troy, New York to meet Raj. And I'm meeting with the CEO, and I, I've never been to upstate New York. So I go up to upstate New York thinking it's like an extension of New York City. That it is not. <laughs> so right. I go to Troy, New York, this little tiny sleepy town near Albany, and I'm like, eh, it's a little sketchy. Um, I'm like, okay, you know, to my, my girlfriend, I'm like, why don't you just hang out here? I'm just going to go and, you know, do this meeting. And I walk in there, and I'll never forget the scene. <laughs> There's some guy. It's like on the third floor of some rinky-dink office building. There's this guy with his feet up on a like a big like Sun Microsystems monitor, right? Remember mm-hmm. those old big like blue? Was it yes. Sun that had them, or was it the who was it that had those big blue monitors? I can't remember. Anyway, so he had this big giant blue monitor. He put his feet up with no socks on, and he's got long hair, and he's just sitting there brushing his hair with like a <laughs> keyboard, leaning back on his desk, and and. And I like come in, I'm like in a suit and stuff, right? right. <laughs> and um, here's this guy and he's just, you know, it turns out he was one of the early Debian maintainers. But, um, you know, he's just like brushing his hair and he looks at me a little odd. And he's like, what are you here for? And I was like, I'm here to meet Raj, the CEO. He's like, Raj? Oh yeah, I don't know where he is, right? <laughs> and so out comes this other guy, Matt, and we start talking and He's like, yeah, Raj. Oh, yeah, we don't know where he is. He'll be here soon, I guess, right? There's this other dude sitting in the corner with like monster tire trucks, and he's like spitting chewing tobacco in it, you know, whatever. He was like one of the sugar CRMs guys who were working on something. Yeah. Turns out these were just a couple of college kids who dropped out from RPI, who had started yeah. this little hosting company doing Linux because Raj had worked at VA Linux over the summer and come back being like, Linux is the future, and I'm going to start a Linux hosting company. And turns out I was like one of their biggest customers. Um, and so, uh, I ended up, uh, really getting along with Raj and we went into business together and that was, uh, our first kind of Linux based hosting business, Voxel. Um, and, uh, it went really well. Raj now runs a company called Grafana. Um, so if you're familiar with the time series world and whatnot, we've stayed really close, but we grew that business for, I don't know, nine years, 10 years, bootstrapped it, sold wow. it in 2011, um, and, uh, had an awesome run basically growing up with the open source internet, um, scaling some of the biggest stuff and turning from a, um, little tiny Linux hosting business into a cloud company. So it was really a cool run, but yeah, that's, that's how I knew at Julia. I was like something else. And I just, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I didn't know. And sure. then I just like said, Hey, this whole Linux hosting thing is like a year old. Why not us? And yeah. we just started going at it. I mean, you kind of you kind of stumbled into the like whole cloud hosting thing. Everybody I mean, stumbles into the cloud hosting. Well, sure. thing. <laughs> Nobody gets there on purpose. <laughs> but I, but I mean, I think like you're you're tra- you're going from like uh, you know uh, being a musician to oh yeah stumbling into like really as just a complete fluke. Which sounds um, odd, but you know what? As I've met over I, the years, like most people, I'm like, hey, what did you do? He's like, oh, I was a theater major. You know, right, like, right. oh, I had a band in college and then it didn't work out, so I did this, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who are fixers or tinkers or stagehands or, you know, artists or whatever who have gotten their way into the hosting business or cloud business. Yeah. So it's it's a little unusual, but not that unusual. I, I sure. certainly, it's a lot of luck and I, I wouldn't have ended there 
like on purpose. I just kind of right. showed up and hit, hit a couple of the right things at the right time and was too uninformed to think, why not, why not me? Why not we work on this yeah. and try and solve these problems? So you, um, so companies, you sell Voxel in 2011. Mm. Um, and then did you stay on board for a little while at the acquiring well, company? That was a really interesting ride. I mean, Raj and I had owned most of the cap table. We didn't really take funding until, um, late 2009. People didn't fund mm -hmm. cloud companies at the time, um, sure. because they didn't like the lack of contracts. They're like, what's going on with this on-demand revenue thing? Um, yep. and I uh, was like, no, trust me, they, they, they stay, they pay you every month. <laughs> they, right. they keep growing as a matter of fact. Um, yeah. but we finally raised some capital in 2009. We, Raj and I were like oil and water. We're so different. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who's like folding my underwear drawer and he is like, you know, not right. And yeah. so yeah. we ran this company together. I was running ops. He was like, an, I mean, I, I think back and like, wow, I really didn't understand how good of a thinker he naturally is just an out-of-the-box thinker and i was totally not i had to work on it and um so you know we kind of had some friction like all founders i think um these mm -hmm. are really hard i mean we were bootstrapped and made literally no money for seven years right so it's like these are hard times for you the emotional side of being a founder is complicated right and you know, we had about 100 employees or about 80 employees. Um, we were global. We had offices in Singapore. And we were totally bootstrapped and literally living paycheck to paycheck and keeping mm -hmm. our people paycheck to paycheck, right? Um, yep, yep. And that's a lot of stress. So in 2009, we raised some capital. We almost had to sell the business because, I mean, that's 2009. I don't know if you remember, but that was like really hard to get money at that time. The financial yep. crisis, and we were a very CapEx intensive business. So we had to buy a lot of stuff. And literally all of our lenders stopped lending to us. And um, because of the credit crisis, meanwhile, all the enterprises started outsourcing to cloud because they're mm -hmm. like, we don't want to buy stuff. We want to just use it. And so right. we had never had a better time in our business, but we couldn't get access to capital. And so we spent eight or nine months trying to raise capital. It was really tough. And finally, um, we realized that a couple of 28-year-olds, you know, who couldn't sell, spell EBITDA um, we're getting in our own way. That was us, right? We'd literally yeah. never done a balance sheet. We're like, there's money in the bank, should be okay. And we'll do taxes at the end of the year. Um, mm -hmm. But we didn't know how to show the value of our business, frankly. And we were not prepared. We didn't have like proprietary rights agreements or like all of our diligence stuff. So every time we walked in to raise money, people just laughed at us. And, you know, they either took advantage of us using like incredibly awful term sheets or they spoke language we didn't understand, right? Which was like acronyms and other things. Um, and so we ended up saying, you know what we got to do? We got to bring in somebody to help us. We don't know how to play this whole like raise money, sell the company CEO thing. We know how to build networks and write software and automate cloud things, but we don't know about this. So we, we ended up finding a guy named Raul Martinek um, who um, we really both, it was scary because we were both control freaks, um, but uh, we, we really liked him. We thought that he had the right kind of um, background and institutional knowledge to understand like our business model. He come from the telecom world, which is normally a bad thing in cloud, but he had... Um, just really is like had this zest for learning. He would always be like, tell me more about how this works. Tell me about these customers, right? So we brought him on board. He helped us raise some capital within like a month, right? Because of course he's like, I can spill EBITDA and I see the lifetime value on these contracts and wow, you're growing really fast and you know, you just need access to more capital. And so he tells that story. We end up getting some, some investment from a company called Seaport Capital. Um, and then like literally within nine months, we start getting calls for acquisitions, right? We turn them down and then people keep paying more and saying, no, no, no more. And we ended up selling to a company called Internap uh, in 2011 because we basically said, you know, pay us that multiple, but also pay us for the next year or two worth of growth. And they did it. We're like, okay. Right. And it worked out for us. We've been hungry for a long time. So that helped, you know, put a little something in our bellies. Um, yep. But I, I don't think I was fully prepared for what it meant to be acquired. I don't think anybody is. Um, I mean, we had a very strong vision around our company and what was right and what was our customers, you know, and everything. And um, we sold, it was good for everybody. Internet was a great company to be acquired by. Eric Cooney, who was the CEO at the time, was really, really good to us and helped. But in the end, I wasn't, re I wasn't prepared for big company politics. And right. um, that really, I was put in charge of the cloud business unit. 
Um, I was heading up the BU um, to, to kind of help grow the public cloud and um, fascinating learning experience. We had a hundred salespeople, you know, we had like 15 offices globally for sales. Like, wow, that was a machine. They had a lot of customers and everything, but I wasn't prepared for the politics of it. I just thought everybody would be super passionate about doing the right thing. Yep. You know, and turns out it wasn't that way. People had different agendas. People cared about different things. A lot of people just wanted to get the job done and go home. I, I wasn't used yep. to that. And, and so that was a change for me. And, you know, I learned a lot, but I realized that um, it probably wasn't going to be a place for me to, you know, I didn't want to move to Atlanta and run the cloud business sure. unit for, for internet for very long. So I left after a year, um, did my kind of investor obligations, um, learned a ton about how to work within a public company, how to present to a, the public company board, um, how to uh, deal with different constituents and sales and, you know, engineering budgets that I don't control, but had to influence, you know, all that kind of stuff was actually in retrospect, really useful for me. Um, yeah. and then I, and then I left and, and then suddenly it went from like having hundreds of emails a day to having zero emails a day. And right. it was really weird. I struggled with it. So how did, I mean, so you, I guess were you in sort of intentionally taking time off or did, was the idea for packet already sort of brewing? Oh no. I mean, it was the anti packet. Um, I was determined never to be in the infrastructure business again. Mm -hmm. I was like, this business is hard. We had sold partly because we needed a break and partly because we thought that the hyperscale cloud model was um, unbeatable with the software ecosystems that they had created. And um, I said, you know what, I'm going to just chill. I had made enough money where I didn't really have to work. I had some kids who were pretty young. I spent two summers um, house swapping into Europe with my family because I was like, why not? So we swapped sure. with somebody's house and lived there for three months. And it was super cool. Um, I, uh, I started running, I did a couple 10 Ks, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, yep. um, and I worked a little bit cause I was used to working. I, um, I worked a little bit, made some investments, some angel stuff, which I'm really proud of. Um, and then, uh, worked a little bit for some M and A people as the operator guy in the room, got to see a lot of businesses, um, which was super fun for me. You know, I'm 32 years old and looking at, you know, half billion dollar acquisition deals was pretty cool. Um, just to learn how it all worked and, and, and networked a lot through a lot of like um, started to put together these founders um, parties uh, here in New mm -hmm. York, where I just would do these Junto dinners and bring together people with really interesting ideas as part of the internet infrastructure space. Cause I wanted to learn more. And, um, and then about two years in um, I was hanging out with my brother and a guy named Aaron Welch, who was a client of mine at, uh, at the time um, or, or in my previous uh, Voxel and um, a couple other people and I throw in one of these parties and it kind of became kind of a reunion slash hangout for all the internet infrastructure people in New York. So, you know, Ben from DO was just really getting started then. So he'd come and his crew would come and, you know, uh, the, there's like a hoster contingency that would all show up. And I just heard a lot of bitching, right? Mm -hmm, I was like mm -hmm. about how it was being done wrong or this didn't make sense, you know, against the hyperscale cloud model which was really proprietary. Like most of us had built our business off of open source um, Linux, frankly. And we felt, uh, many of us felt, it seemed to be the recurring theme that I identified that there was this kind of common thread of um, that there was a different way with software um, being more open and not kind of locked up and proprietary with all these SaaS services that were coming uh, from the hyperscalers. And so we decided, you know, I was like, you know, there might be a better way. So I started thinking about it and my brother encouraged me. He said, you know, Zach, like, this is all your, these are your tribe. You know how this thing works. Why don't you figure out the right way to do it? Why don't you figure out the better model? You're not happy with what's going on. And so I think what really tipped me over the edge, because I was really against it. I was like, no, this is not good. I don't want to be in this hyper competitive at scale infrastructure business. Right. right and, right. Um, and then I was meeting with a guy named Alex Polvey. Uh, he had started CoreOS. It was a friend of mine from the, he sold his last business to Rackspace. He had, had a thing called LibCloud where I knew him from. And so here's Alex who's in my office just hanging out because um, he would come from California to meet, I, I don't know, come here for something. And we were chatting and here's this guy who's like, I'm redoing Linux. I'm like, what do you mean you're redoing Linux? I thought, you know, Red Hat, CentOS, Ubuntu, it's all good, right? There's no money in Linux except for Red Hat. 
He's like, no, 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 we got we to gotta redo the whole thing. I was like, why? He's like, well, I've been working you know, on this container stuff, right? And um, I thought, oh, interesting. Tell me more. And I was reading up on what Solomon was doing at Doc Cloud, which was becoming Docker, right? And he's like, there's just, you know, we got to redo the whole stack so that way we can make it super portable for software. I was like, oh, interesting. And I got into that and I just felt, you know, here are these developers like Alex and, you know, all these other people with these massive ideas to hack the whole stack. And there is an opportunity and a place and almost like a requirement for unopinionated infrastructure for developers. How could we bring hardware? Like what I did in 2001 is me and Raj took a rack from some guy in New Jersey who helped us. And, you know, we put servers in it and had a, had a switch and, and got on the internet. That was actually becoming really hard for most people who wanted to innovate further because yeah. the world is more difficult. By the way, go into a colo place like DRT and ask them for a rack and help with a switch. They laugh at you, right? right? They're like, how many megawatts do you want? <laughs> you know, because they're busy taking orders from the hyperscale clouds and you want a rack, like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and you want help too. Um, yeah. And so we felt like, wow, there has to be a way where we can give the same innovation playing field that we had, which is how Linux was born, by the way, because people had computers they could hack on the BIOS with. And I said, here we have locked up, you know, MacBooks that you can't even open. You've got, you know, so much happening in the cloud where you don't control most of the substrate, you know, the networking layer, the OS layer, the hypervisor, the multi-tenancy, you don't control the hardware. I was like, how can we give a, a more millennial-friendly, developer-friendly approach to hardware versus go and buy all the stuff and do it all yourself and then automate yeah. it and then make it all work? And we knew how hard that was. Like, there's a lot in there. And suddenly we're asking people to do it all and also make it work for developers, which is really hard. And so that's where the idea was born for Packet. It was like, hey, you know what we could do? We could be a safe place for people to run and innovate on hardware, no matter what that hardware is, no matter where it is, or no matter who owns it. I'm like, right. that would be really cool. And that everybody I talked to about it was like, yeah, that would be really cool. Because you know what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to work on these ARM boxes, or I'm trying to rebuild Linux, or I like have this totally different idea on hardware security, or blah, 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 right? People wanted to innovate further. And then um, Jacob could try to quantify it. So he did a Google search because Aaron, um, who helped start the business with us, he was really into like Raspberry Pis and stuff. He was like a tinker, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And I, I make the analogy that in the 70s, my dad like played on his Mustang and in the 80s, I played on my, you know, PC. And in the 2000s, people played on their Raspberry Pis, right? Um, right, right. Or, or whatnot. And, and now people are playing with their like Zigbee home automation things or whatever. But people are always like tinkering and Aaron was super into Raspberry Pi. So Jacob did this little Google search on like cloud and, you know, it goes up and to the right a little bit. And then like, you know, then there's like Docker and it's like a little bit more. And then you go like Raspberry Pi is like off the charts. And I mean, you can still do it today. It's like orders of magnitude bigger than like cloud if you do a Google trend search. Right? Mm -hmm. And it's because there's just this mass market of tinkers and who are tinkering with hardware. And they've got the Wi-Fi module, they're doing this door opener, infrared, you know, like all these kinds of things. And so we said, wow, there is a mass market around innovators for hardware. People want to write stuff and do things with all those opinions. So how could we do that? So that's, that's why we decided to start Packet. That's why we decided to start Packet. What, when, you, when you're starting like this sort of infrastructure product mm. that really has, I mean, a lot of hardware wrapped up into it, like what are... What are sort of the unique challenges that come with that compared to say, like a sort of just creating like a SaaS company, right? Like where you're almost purely software. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, first off, you have to hire a kind of very diverse group of people um, yeah. because you need to tinker with BIOSes and, you know, physical tidbits and whatnot. You have to make a lot of that easier. But at the same time, we, we had this mission of doing it with as little opinion as possible. Like how could we do this automation with an API for a developer that was highly consistent, but give them more and more and more control, um, more access to the stack um, instead of less. And there's a lot of ways to abstract developers and then give them a pretty you know, sophisticated experience. And we wanted to do the opposite. We want to say, how can we take this like hard thing and create this new category called hardware as a service? So first off, it required money because you have right. to buy things, right? Uh, because no, I couldn't like go to Amazon and say, hey, could you give me some of your hardware? 
They're like, no, 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 you sure. can buy EC2. Or like, no, no, I want the hardware. And they're like, no, 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 that's not what we sell, right? right. And so um, I had to go buy hardware. So we raised, you know, I luckily I had some capital, so I was able to help do that with some some C guys. And we said, let's 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 get into the hardware business, which is, sounds really stupid in 2014, right? Sure. And um, and then let's make it like crazy automated. And so we spent about a year. Um, you know, writing these kind of like very fundamental services where we felt like, you know, in the, in, in my, my previous life at Voxel, we were always kind of cribbing it. We were like scripting something up. And I said, you know what we could do is like, let's just really focus on those very boring under cloud things. Like let's focus on how to have a really good DHCP server. Let's have a really, really good Pixie server. Let's have a really good microservice that talked to weirdo BMCs like Dell Idrax. Because I don't want to deal with Dell Idrac, right? So let's let's just write those and make them super good, and then see if people like it. <laughs> and um, it took us about eight nine months to get our first kind of metal as a service product out in the market. And within like a month, we had like five thousand users, including wow. like Mitchell was one of our first users from from HashiCorp. I was like, okay, yeah. I've died and gone to heaven. You know, the king of DevOps is now like hanging out on my platform, right? Yeah, <laughs> Something's yeah. right. And it turns out he wanted to build like automatically build ESXi or something, mm -hmm. what he was doing, I don't know. Um, and so there was a lot of just hiring diverse talent, putting in some, you know, hard money, like to buy stuff. So sure. we had, you know, four different data centers that we rolled up to do that. And then having a lot of faith that what we were doing wasn't completely stupid because literally everybody I talked to was like, now is the time to be getting out of the hardware business, not into it. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I really think that there's a different way. So it required some, um, how do I put it? You know, not balls of steel. You have to just, I just was actually willing to lose it all, you know, and being like, you know what, why not? Let's just see if we can make it work. I mean, do you, do you think like that sort of mindset, I, I think like, yeah, like what, what helps you or allows you to push through when, you know, the one, it's a very, it's a capital intensive thing. So there's, yep. there's a decent amount of risk. Oh, yeah. And then on top, on top of that, you know, the, um, most people are telling you just to not do that. Like, how do you push through that? Um, <laughs> and most people will tell you that there's like, I was just so sure on my vision that I just knew it had to be done bullshit right it's like um yeah. i had doubt all the time right and i just set a litmus test that said you know what i'm going to do is i'm going to get it to the point where i can prove i think this is interesting i think this is the way the world is going which is a really diverse set of hardware with a really diverse set of software so how can i help that um, nobody else is doing it so either i'm totally crazy or really smart We'll see, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, what I need to do is I need to get to the point where I, I said, you know, I really, I really tried. I got it to the point where I could prove in the market that it was, people wanted it or people didn't. And of course, there's all kinds of things when doing a startup. It's like, did you get the right people? Did you get there? You know, the timing is so critical. Like if, sure. if CoreOS hadn't like come out with, and Docker hadn't taken off, I'm not sure our business would exist. But the whole concept of cloud native, which we were peddling from day one, became popular at the right time. Just as we were yeah. coming to market, people were like, you know, what would be really cool is if we just use fundamental compute and built everything in microservices and got to move it all around no matter what it was. I'm like, that sounds yeah. right what we're doing. And, and so that was just good timing, right? Mm -hmm. But I just set this litmus test that I wanted to prove to myself, I'm 30, whatever, four years old. What's the worst that can happen? I got to go get a job. Sure. So let's go work on this. Let's spend a million or $2 million, which is what we had, um, and get to market and see if the market liked it. And then the market validated us. And, and what I think is important for a founder um, is just realize what your strengths and weaknesses are. And in mine, yeah. we certainly weren't the biggest. We didn't have unlimited money. We had no brand, right? We didn't have any customers. We had none of those things. But what we did have is we cared a lot and we would listen. And so, man, I just talked like every day I'd have, 10 meetings with customers or people that I respected and it would be just nonstop. And I just listened to what they were saying and get yeah. their feedback. And that's the one thing I know as a small subscale startup that we could do was we could react faster to what our customers wanted. And I listened sure. really hard to what they were saying. And at the same time, we had a principle which said, and we still have it today, we will not be in the choose the winner software business. That's why Packet doesn't offer load balancing. That's so why Packet doesn't offer a firewall. That's why Packet doesn't do databases. A lot of people ask us all the time. They said, well, that, that would be nicer. That would be better. But you know, we said, we're in the hardware as a service business. We know what our, our mission is. 
our ecosystem and our partners and our customers know way more about software than we do. So how can we be in service to them? So we did have some ground rules on what we were willing to do for our customers and not, but you know, we kind of set out this mission, listen to the customers, react quickly, build what they want, but do it within the framework that you know, we were committed to. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I stayed true to it. Yeah. So kind of starting to wrap things up here. So what's, um, what's the next year, you know, you guys, if I, I, I'm assuming 2018 was probably a pretty, pretty big. great year for as far as yeah. growth. So like, what's, what does 2019 look like for you guys? Well, you know, there's a phrase that we're venture backed at this point. So we've mm-hmm. raised about $40 million um, from mm-hmm. various um, VCs, awesome group of people um, who have supported our vision. SoftBank coming in in 2016 um, was really helpful for us because they were definitely ahead of the curve thinking about, um, you know, believing in our vision. Um, but there's kind of a, uh, a, a maxim that goes in venture back startups is, uh, what is it? Uh, triple, 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 double, double equals a billion dollar mm-hmm. business. Um, you know, that, that, that's like a financial side that we're going to continue to grow. Um, and then, so we've been doing that pretty well and we'll continue to do that. So that's a big part of 2019 is to really continue to grow. But most important for me is to really fulfill on our mission of how to automate hardware for people. We have a lot of investments. We're going to do a lot more in the open source ecosystem. We think that at this time that we really have, it's, it's been a pain point for packet, how we don't have enough open software, even though that's what we are in service of, right? Um, yeah, right. And I, we've always struggled with that because we didn't feel that there was a strong community around things like DHCP services and Pixie servers. But we think at this point, there's becoming one. And so we wanna help to um, add fuel to that fire and give back to um, the community that's helped us so much. So we'll be doing more in the open source world than we already do. About 5% of our revenue, by the way, goes to open source infrastructure support. So we're pretty committed, whether it's the CNCF, through the OpenStack community, through you know, um, uh, the kernel, which we host and support, to most mm-hmm. operating systems that we help and support the builds for. Um, we do a lot with an open source, but we want to start actually committing some of our code back. So that's going to be a pretty big part of 2019. And then the last thing is really our, our edge model. So we've focused on how we can meet very diverse hardware needs for people in really weird places and the answer is like we have to change the capital structure we can't afford to like buy the right thing and put it in the right place to have a developer to be able to access it we need to have a distribution platform that says i can put the right thing anywhere you want it and make it into a cloud and so that's what we've been working on we launched our first mobile edge data center um, on the parking lot of uh, patriot stadium (laughs) <laughs> about three weeks ago. It, it's sitting on the parking lot at a tower um, owned by SBA Tower. It's a six rack, 100 kilowatt data center. Uh, it's got servers in it. You can use our whole cloud API. It's got connectivity back to the clouds, all that kind of good stuff. What's cool about it is not that it's like, it's kind of cool it's sitting on the parking lot of Patriot Stadium. That's kind of cool. Sure. Um, what's cool about it, it's, it's it's go anywhere cloud model. Once we get that working with SBA, they have like 15,000 towers in the US. If we want to go to every city in America with the cloud, we can do it. And we have customers who are already asking us to do that. So that's really a fun part of what we're doing in 2019 is introducing other types of capital and other kinds of of distribution into the cloud business Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, would you like to be in the metal as a service business? Um, So that way we can help your enterprise customer or this emerging new edge use case or this car company or this smart city, you know, actually innovate on that. So that's kind of um, a big a big part of our 2019 plan. Sure, sure. That oh, not cool. break. That's the other part. Don't break. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> make, make things work. Yeah, right. We're 100 people now, yeah. up from about 30, you know, over the summer last year. And wow. a big part of that is this is like hard, right? I don't know everybody as well as I'd like to. Um, sure. So you got to, we got to not break because we'll probably be, you know, hiring plan and, you know, around 200 people at the end of this year. So that's, yeah. that's the biggest company I've ever ran in my life. And I got a lot sure. to learn. Yep, yep. Well, how how can people follow along with with you and Packet? Uh, well, we're we're on Twitter. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, at Packet Host or myself, Z Smith uh, NYC. Um, our blog is really good, and if you uh, subscribe to our newsletter, I guarantee we don't ever send crap. So um, it has awesome stuff from our random channel, um, which is probably uh, the most popular, second only to our home 
a lab channel where people post pictures of their home labs. Um, yep. So yeah, come onto our Slack channel, um, which is packet or slack.packet.com um, or subscribe to our newsletter. I think you might enjoy it. All right. That's good stuff. Thanks so much for, uh, for hopping on a call, Zach. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. There we have it. Zach Smith, founder of Packet. Thanks for listening this week. If you need revenue analytics and insights for your business, check out bearmetrics.com. If you have any feedback, I would love to hear it. Shoot me an email, josh at bearmetrics.com or on Twitter at Spigvard. Head to founderchats.com to listen to lots of other conversations with founders. And if you enjoyed this, a rating on iTunes or sharing this with your friends goes a long way. Thanks again and see you next week.